have we got a burning hot story for you today. In Cape Bathurst, where Canada's mainland meets the Arctic Ocean, an entire coastline is burning. That's amazing. And this, this location is aptly named the Smoking Hills. It's home to a really unique geological feature, a deposit of sedimentary rock that's been burning and smoldering continuously for thousands of years. On this episode, we'll be speaking with a research scientist who visited the, quote, hellish landscape to study it firsthand. And this is not an exaggeration. The air is so toxic, you need to wear a gas mask if you want to put boots on the ground. Boots, by the way, who could very well start melting depending on where you step. Wow. I can't wait to hear all about this, but why are scientists fascinated with the smoking hills? How do we even know that these hills have actually been burning for so long? And what's this link between this phenomenon and our understanding of life on the planet Mars? Stay tuned, we're about to find out. Welcome to a new episode of Simply Science, the podcast that talks about the amazing scientific work that our experts at Natural Resources Canada are doing. My name is Joel Ull. And I'm Barb Justina. Welcome, everyone. And Joel, as you said off the top, we have a really smoking hot episode for you today. We have a really rare natural phenomenon. We get some insight into how Arctic explorers operated 200 years ago. And we talk about the potential for life on Mars. This episode, really, it has it all. Oh, it's going to be great for sure. But just before we start, I just want to encourage everyone to subscribe to the podcast. If you haven't already, make sure you don't miss an episode. And also, if you can take the time to leave a review, that would be absolutely amazing. It helps us reach more people and grow our podcast. So thank you so much. Okay, Barb, should we bring in our guest? Let's do it. Our guest today, Steve Grasby, is a research scientist working on the geochemistry of sedimentary rocks. Steve, welcome to the show. Great, thank you for having me. So you look specifically at sediments deposited in oceans. Could you please explain or expand a little bit on this? Yeah, I mean, ever since the, I guess the Earth was formed and we've had oceans that all the sediments that kind of erode off the continents get washed in, you know, in rivers and, and they end up in the ocean basins and they just accumulate through time so you get these layers of sediments that build up and what happens then is that for every little layer marks a point in time so that stack of layer becomes a record of the ocean that it was deposited in and each layer gives you a little window into what was the chemistry of the ocean at that time so if you change the ocean chemistry it changes some of the chemical parameters of sediments and now you know tens of millions of years later we can go look at those sediments, we can measure the chemistry and use that to interpret like what was the ocean like at that time. And, and by looking at these series of layers uh, that have deposited over time, we can start to tell the whole history of the, of the world's oceans. And, you know, normally things are pretty stable and calm, but there's periods in the Earth's past where we've had, you know, ice ages and uh, the planet got very cold and we've had periods where we've had uh, hot houses and the planet got very hot, and, and we've had just dramatic events like uh, huge uh, volcanic eruptions that have caused just 
you know, chaos and mass extinctions on the planet. And we can start to look at these sediments and the chemistry of them and start to read into what was the kind of the changes in the Earth's environment and how did life respond to these dramatic events. And it gives us insight to you know, both the history of the planet, but also into the future as we go into a you know, period of uh, climate warming and, and environmental stress. And we can better understand by looking at the past how the, the planet and the oceans respond to these types of stresses. Well, wow, really very interesting. Now, we're here today to talk a bit about the work you're doing at a, a location called Smoking Hills, which sounds absolutely incredible. I'm wondering, um, most of us will never have a chance to go there to see it in person. Could you set the scene for us uh, briefly? What's it like to be there? What was it like the first time you set foot on ground there? Yeah, and, you know, it's, I guess it's a hard question to answer in a way because it's very diverse. So, you know, in the, the general area is just beautiful. It's the Arctic tundra and it's remote and you see a lot of wildlife and, um, you know, just this unspoiled, un, untouched uh, part of the, the world. But when you get to the areas of the Smoking Hills, where, and it's called that because the rocks there are naturally burning. And, boy, the first impression when I got there was that I have to leave. I mean, it's just really like hell on earth. And it's just everything about it is absolutely horrible. The, the ground is really hot. It's black. Everywhere is black. Uh, it's just kind of deep muck that you walk through. So you feel like you're going to get stuck in this hot, mucky ground. And then there's um, chimneys of smoke coming out. So there's loud steam smells or sounds. And then you get this uh, strong smell of hydrogen sulfide. So the steam coming out is actually sulfuric acid. So you have to wear all this protective gear or else you're just going to burn your eyes and your throat. It would just you know, probably kill you instantly if you got too close to these sites. So uh, it really just everything about it says you do not belong here. It, it sounds like a really interesting location like I, I haven't heard anything about smoking hills you think it's the kind of thing that you would be learning about in school but from my understanding it's not something that's of interest just from a scientific perspective but also from a historical perspective um can you tell us a little bit about smoking hills and its place in canadian folklore in indigenous records and all that yeah certainly and and it is uh like you say it's, it's kind of surprisingly unknown it's it's fairly unique place in Canada for sure and if not the world there's not many spots like it um, and maybe it's just this remoteness that people don't know about it or hear about it but certainly Inubialawit who live in that area have known about it for generations um, they you know they have uh, legends of there being people living in the ground and then the smoke that you see is the smoke from the campfires and uh, you know, they were trying to, to hide away, apparently, in, in the legend. But you can find this online. There's some good uh, records of the Inuvialuit legends of the area. And the first sort of written record was by members of the Franklin Expedition, but not the one that got lost, but the one before. They had an overland expedition where they went down the Mackenzie River, and Franklin and his group went uh, west, and then another party went east, and that party uh, came across the Smoking Hills and and make record of that. And uh, so that was sort of the first kind of written record. And then later on, when the Franklin Franklin expedition got lost, the, the next time they went to the Arctic with the ships, that there's all the search parties looking for them. And there's the McClure uh, search party. And then they went into that same area and saw smoke on the shorelines. And at first thought, well, maybe this is a campfire for the people we're, we're looking for. And they went to check it out and discovered it was these 
these burning uh, shales, and they even brought back samples to the to the ship, uh, and they apparently put them on the desk of uh, Captain McClure, and it burned holes in his nice mahogany desk. So he wasn't very pleased with the the people that brought these samples back to show them. Oh wow! They're still so hot that they could you know set fire to his desk. Yeah, so when you read these written records, uh, they even describe that when they got to the site, they saw these ponds of this red, ruby red water, and it, they decided to taste it for some reason. And what's funny, though, is you read this, it says it tastes like sulfuric acid, and oh. you just don't understand, like, how do they know what sulfuric acid tastes like? Yeah. And why did they even decide to taste this bright red water in the first place? Um, so it's, it's quite you know, almost humorous when you read some of these stories about the first explorers that were in the area. Wow. Have you had the urge to test it yourself or? Well, no, I, I decided, you know, I, I read the descriptions, but we did, we did uh, test it with uh, some scientific equipment. And sure enough, that, you know, this is actually the other funny part is that they're right. It is basically sulfuric acid that's in these ponds and, and they're just full of toxic metals. So it's, it's probably some of the most toxic natural waters anywhere on earth. And, uh, uh, you know, the pH is so low, it's actually a negative pH value, and there's some complex chemistry that can explain how that can happen, because most people think of pH as kind of running between 1 and 4, and neutral pH is 7, you learn this in school, but there we're measuring pHs of like minus 1.4, 1.5, so it's it's probably some of the most acidic waters in the world as well. It sounds like a, a weird superhero origin story, uh, gone horribly wrong. Yeah. Wow, <laughs> that's crazy. And it's pretty amazing that they were able to live to tell the story, right? You know, you think like like taking sips of that water would put you out for a long time. Yeah, I guess maybe they just had a few sips. They also noted that it burnt holes in their clothing as well. So So we know that the the, the hills have been smoldering for at least a, a couple few hundred years. Is there any way of knowing like exactly how long they've been smoldering for? Yeah, you know, that's a great question and one we've been pondering how we can test that. Um, you know, there are some techniques you can try to uh, date the age of the rocks that have been cooked by the, the high temperatures. Uh, another thing you see in this area is that where these burning has occurred is that the shales beside that, they get really cooked and they turn into like a bright red brick material. And it's called clinker. And it comes from the sound when you walk across it, it has this kind of clinking sound to it. And uh, that name comes from, you know, smelters where they smelt, uh, you know, ores to get metals out of it. And then they have this byproduct of clinker. And we see the same thing there. And uh, so we pondered how we could maybe date that. Uh, we're still trying to look at some some methods that could do that. But the age, you know, we know that probably has been able to burn since at least the, you know, the glaciers receded in that area about, you know, seven to 10,000 years ago. And certainly, again, if you, you know, look at the Nubia traditional knowledge, uh, it's been long known that this is an area that's been burning. So everything, you know, that we know of suggests that this has been a burning site for quite a long time. uh, But yeah, we're trying to resolve how, how long. Wow. Now, um, tell us a bit about your research research project uh, there. Now, what was it about the Burning Hills that sort of first captured your attention? And what were you curious about? What did you want to discover? Yeah, well, we had a group of people. Um, it was a group, uh, you know, led by uh, Rod Smith. And we 
from my same office and we had a, a field camp set up and everyone's looking at kind of different parts of the natural history and the geology of the area. For me, it was just to understand better, you know, why are these uh, shales burning and, you know, what's the process that occurs and, you know, why do they set on fire? Um, and and also then just to look at all the products of this burning that's going on and, and we're looking at the minerals that are formed and you just have these bizarre ranges of very rare minerals that you don't find in many places because you need these very hot, moist environments to form them. And some of them are just beautiful, you know, green, kind of, they almost look like emerald crystals and things like this. But the problem is, uh, one, when you try to uh, collect them, they would just burn holes in our sample containers because they're still so hot. So they're just like melting their way through our, our containers we're trying to collect them into. And then, two, even if you did collect them, that they just uh, turned to like a white powder by the end of the day just because as soon as they're outside that environment, they just alter to another mineral and, and they're no longer these beautiful crystals that we see. But uh, just trying to understand and characterize the nature and diversity of this very unique site in the world and to understand the processes that are going on and, and all the um, characterize the, you know, the various unique minerals and chemistry and, and understanding the whole site. What did you actually discover when, uh, you know, through your research? Well, one of the, you know, kind of sideline discoveries, it wasn't really what we're, you know, I was looking at the burning sites, but uh, we are also looking at the shales that do burn. So we looked at these away from where the burning is occurring. And one of the interesting things is that, um, you know, the shale, you know, it's just like piles of, of kind of uh, mud, I guess. And there's these very uh, distinct layers that occur within the shale, and we're trying to see what these layers are. And it turns out to be a mineral called jerosite. And, um, you know, it's a, not a common mineral. It's a fairly rare mineral but on, on Earth. And, but here we just saw these distinct bands of it formed within the shale unit itself. And we're then trying to understand, oh, why do we get these bands of shale, uh, of jerosite within the shale? And from that, we discovered what it was, is that uh, when these shales were deposited, the oceans at that time were anoxic, so there was no oxygen in the water. And when you have those conditions, you can form a mineral pyrite. It's iron and uh, sulfur that uh, join together to form a mineral pyrite. This is known popularly as fool's gold, so it looks kind of goldy in color. And in this area, in this kind of cold permafrost region, when that um, pyrite is exposed to some, some moisture in the air, it oxidizes and is forming this mineral jerosite. And this became quite interesting because uh, although it's not common on Earth, that jerosite has been found quite commonly on Mars. And it's been used a, a lot to try and interpret what we know about the history and the oceans and the, or the, you know, the water bodies historically that occurred on Mars. And were you surprised when you saw the layers and layers of jerosite there in Smoking Hills? Well, it was unusual, just as I say, because uh, it's not a common mineral on Earth and not something you'd expect to find. Where you do find it would be in places like, uh, you know, in acid mine drain sites or, it's found in some acidic lakes in Australia and also some other sort of um, places where you might have net exposure of a, of a ore minerals that are oxidizing and you're forming these kind of acidic ponds and rivers. So that's 
it's been associated then with these acid environments. And because of that, uh, where it's found on Mars, it's interpreted to mean that the, the water on Mars has to be very acidic to form these layers of jarosite that they see in, in rocks on Mars. And um, what's different between that and what we see is that, you know, we know these uh, jarosite layers in these shales that we see was deposited in very normal ocean at the time. Um, we can see abundant fossils of marine life in these same shales. We know it was a very, you know, lush ocean full of life, full of uh, diversity of, of animals. So it wasn't a harsh environment and it wasn't an acidic environment when the shales were deposited so that these jarosite layers are just a modern weathering feature. It's nothing to do with the environment of the, of the ocean of when the shales were formed. So it, jarosite is not necessarily formed um, in an acidic environment then. Um, and what, what would this finding mean for scientists who are studying you know, life on Mars, for instance? Yeah, well, this is what we've kind of pointed out, and, and we just published these results, is that, you know, and up until now, um, when people have observed a lot of gerocyte on Mars, and then they said, oh, well, the only place we see this on Earth are in these acid ponds. So that means that the sedimentary rocks on Mars must have been formed in the same kind of acid pond environment. And this makes it, you know, tougher for models and evolution of life on, on the planet if, you know, the part of the whole reason of exploring Mars is to see if life could have occurred outside of Earth. And if all you had were these really acidic ponds, it's a much harder environment for life to uh, form and to diversify. But what we find here now at the Smoking Hills is that these gerocyte layers are just a modern uh, feature and they have nothing to do with the nature of the environment environment that those shales were deposited in. Like these shales are just full of marine fossils. We know that it was a very diverse, abundant um, life in the ocean at that same time. And it was just these pyrite layers that were forming at the bottom of the ocean that are now in the modern oxidizing to form gerocyte. So it has nothing, you know, the presence of gerocyte says nothing about the environment that the shales were formed in. And this makes it much uh more interesting in the sense that if the gerocyte on Mars doesn't mean that there was an acid environment, then it could be that you had much more, you know, uh, friendly conditions for evolution of life on the planet than has been assumed to date. So, you know, we're just trying to point this out to say, well, just because you see gerocyte, it doesn't mean that that was the environment that those sediments are formed in. It could be a similar kind of a weathering feature, just like we see at the Smoking Hills. Mm-hmm. And if it if it's on Earth uh, in these conditions, then maybe it's the same story for Mars. Exactly right. So we're just trying to use the conditions we see on Earth and say, well, this is another way that you can interpret uh, the gerocyte you see on Mars. That is just a this weathering that is occurring much later than when the shales were deposited, and nothing to do with the environment that they were deposited in. What have people told you? You know, what? How are people responding to this? Well, this has been the main thing where we've been talking with some people who've been involved with the NASA and the Mars exploration, and now they're interested to understand like what would uh, the detectors that are used on Mars satellites or rovers, how would they see um, the same you know, 
site at the Smoking Hills because we use different methods to measure what the mineral composition is than we, we use on Earth where we have a big lab and everything, right? So they're, they have a different, you know, more compact instrument that use an entirely different method to detect minerals. And um, so what we see, you know, might look different for a Mars rover, for instance. Well, this is all... like really interesting and it shows it goes to to show really that geoscience is not really you know limited to the earth and what we know about our planet helps us learn more about the universe so thank you so much Steve, for taking the time to come and chat with us today and capturing our imagination great well thanks and that's been great we can't wait to hear more thank you So, Barb, are you booking your trip to go visit the Smoking Hills anytime soon? You know what? I would actually love to visit the Smoking Hills in person, and I'm a bit surprised that we didn't learn about them in geology class in grade school. And truth be told, I'm a bit disappointed in my dad. He was working as a geologist in the north when I was a kid, and he never mentioned them. So, But I'm glad that we've learned all about them today, and it's a good reminder of the incredible places we have in Canada. That's so true. Do you know where I'd love to go if I had the chance? Where? Sable Island. It's so beautiful. For those of you who don't know, a few episodes back, we interviewed this research scientist who was doing um, research on the integrity of the island. And it's this island in the middle of the, um, the Atlantic Ocean near Nova Scotia. And it has beautiful, it's made of sand. So it's beautiful sandy beaches everywhere. There's magnificent wild horses running amok. It is amazing. <laughs> I would love to go there. I wonder if they get winter there. I don't know. Yeah. You know yeah. what? I'll, I'll, I'll go. Okay. I'll check and I'll report back. Okay. Sounds good. <laughs> awesome. So if you're interested in learning more about actually that episode, we can link that episode of Sable Island in the episode description. And also if you're interested in learning more about the type of work that we do in Canada's Northern Landscapes, we'll have those links available in the episode description as well. You can also leave a review or share this episode. That would be amazing. We would appreciate it so much. And if you share over Twitter, make sure to tag us at Science, or even better, you can tag us directly. I'm at Joel Science. And I'm at Simply Science B. That's the letter B. I might remind everyone that Simply Science also has a website and a YouTube channel, which you should check out. We have in-depth articles of interest and videos that showcase the fascinating scientific work that we do here at Natural Resources Canada. And you can find those links in the episode description as well, plus our social media channels. Thank you, Barb. And thank you so much, everyone, for listening. We'll see you in the next episode. Bye. Bye.